Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into the game we all love. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles. I'm delighted to welcome back to the pod Roger Mitchell, sports investor and advisor and uh, all-round hero in Scotland. I think that'd be fair to say, Roger, for your work with the SPL. Uh, not these days. I, I think I've managed <laughs> to upset both sides of the fence. That's what happens when you've got rationality. You end up having no followers whatsoever. So, uh, yeah, yeah, hated by all. Hated by all. Okay, well, 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 you know, we'll see if we can maybe change that over the course of the next hour. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure we will. <laughs> so we're going to start with some uh, some news in the market, as we always like to do. And uh, Duncan has uh, potentially some bad uh, news for Josie Mourinho, Tottenham fans, Tottenham in general. Yeah, look, this is the, the information I have at looking at what Josie Mourinho wants to do in, I was going to say the summer market, but we don't know if it's going to be a summer market yet. The next transfer window, whenever that is opened by the football authorities in England, um, is that he wants at least four new players in. Um, so quite significant change to that squad. Um, but he his guidance from Daniel Levy is that he should not expect to be able to spend transfer fees on these players. Levy wants, if at all possible, to restrict any player coming into Tottenham Hotspur um, to players who are available for no transfer fee, most likely players who are available under freedom of contract, um, which Mourinho expects to be a significant problem. Obviously, it depends how difficult the transfer market becomes and, and how many clubs are, are trying to push players out. And that's something we're going to discuss in detail later in this podcast, but um, doesn't really fit uh, the model Mourinho was was hoping to have and the expectations he had of, of, of this transfer market and improving the squad and turning it into one that can compete for the Premier League title uh, next season. One of the players that um, Mourinho feels he has a chance of acquiring is uh, the Paris Saint-Germain right-back, Thomas Mounier, um, 28-year-old Belgian international, uh, very established performer. He's a, he's, a, he's a big physical fullback of the type that Mourinho has always liked to have in his team to add uh, uh, aerial strength to a defence which um, we've seen had significant problems in set-piece defending this season. He's been directly in contact with Mounier. Mounier's interested in the move, but uh, the guidance I have is that Mounier's preference would be to stay in Paris. Um, there's also a problem there that he, he is already on a, on a very significant salary at Paris Saint-Germain and is looking to get an improvement on that. So that even that deal, um, I think, is going to be difficult. And I think uh, particularly in some of the other positions that Mourinho's looking at centre-back as one of those positions, um, the difficulty of acquiring a top-level central defender under freedom of contract, who is an improvement on what Tottenham already have, is going to be significant. But I guess the plus side for Jose Mourinho is he's not the only manager who's going to suffer. Um, 
and an unexpected and unusual uh, and unpredictable and uh, and a market where where money is going to be used in a very different way to to previous transfer windows roger um this is the kind of uh sort of proposal stroke discussion that we couldn't even have imagined having uh you know four or five months ago never mind you know any time at all given the way the market has inflated in the last decade um Things you're based in Italy. Uh, Italy is where, uh, obviously, was part of the beginning of the European uh, pandemic, um, and obviously Italian football has suffered uh, as much as anyone. What's the feeling there about Serie A? About what's happening elsewhere in Europe with regards to a restart, and of course, what the future holds, both for the game and the economics of the game. Oh, good goodness, that's a big question. Um, we'll, probably, <laughs> we'll, we'll probably break that down a little bit. Uh, sure. Let's start. Let's start with Italy. Um, uh, Italy is pretty much similar to everybody else in the football industry, in that the the, the twenty clubs in Serie A have all agreed that they would love to go back. Surprise, surprise! And they say, um, "Let's hope the government uh, allows us to do that." Um, I think that that is probably unlikely. Uh, and and every day that passes, I think this slow rolling pe rolling penny is starting to get towards the edge of the cliff, because um, I've personally had a view for uh, two or three months that football wasn't going to come back. You know, for the reason you said that you know I had first hand experience of the virus mainly before everybody else, um, but also because you know. Um, I just thought, you know, is, is, is it really going to be able to just snap back into the way it was and we'll find an artificial way to play behind closed doors and in and, and fields like St. George's Park and everybody's going to be happy with that? You know, so uh, I think Italian football is the same as everybody else, which is um, we want to protect our, our economic contracts. So what do the broadcasters need? Uh, we need to um, get playing again. We need to finish competitions. We need to work out uh, champions and relegation and promotion. Uh, you've got the players being pushing back on that a little bit for obvious reasons. So I, I would put it all under the heading of uh, football industry's wishful thinking for the last two months, which day by day is eroding to the harsh reality, I think, that we ain't coming back. In, in Italy, you, you've already had experience of closed doors games, Roger, and yep. and also I think something that could be fundament, was fundamental to, to the game stopping there and I think could be fundamental to the game restarting, you effectively had a player's strike or the threat of a player's strike. So the players ended the football because they weren't prepared to take the risk and didn't feel comfortable playing yep. football in an environment where thousands of people were being taken ill and, and, and subsequently dying. Um, what was that experience of closed door football like? And do you think anything will change with the footballers? Will they still have that position of power to be able to say, sorry, you might want us to come back. You might, we understand why you want to play these games, but it, we're not going to do it at a time when it's dangerous to do so. This is, this is a very good question. 
Um, and, and we're speaking today uh, on May the 1st, which is traditionally Labour Day in Europe, certainly in socialist Europe and places like France and Italy. Um, and in Italy, you do have a very strong culture still of unions, and the player union uh, led by Tomasi is, um, is a very strong one. Um, and they have been saying exactly what you're talking about. Um, in England, you also have an incredibly strong uh, player union. Uh, that's a podcast in itself, but uh, <laughs> um, but uh, you're right. You know, like what what I what I keep saying to everybody these days is there's enough variables. If it was just the health variable, um, you know, did the government say yes or no? The, the reality is that we've got the variable of multiple stakeholders. You've got um, players, as you say, you've got clubs, you've got leagues, you've got then UEFA, and you've got national associations, broadcaster sponsors, all of which are talking with their own agendas, um, all of which are kind of like hoping that the, the, the will of the, it will be all right on the night, um, I think that won't be the case. Uh, and it could be the players that say, no, I'm sorry, we're not doing this. Dybala is tested for the fourth time as positive for the virus. You know, well, six six weeks now he's been positive for the virus. Yeah. How many players, how many players are going to be wanting to like um, marking him at a corner? Do you know what I mean? You know, let, let's just think it through. And, you know, and, and, and us ourselves, you know, people are talking about this. This is the thing that gets me a little bit. There's this idea of, yeah, the calendar can work. Let's think about it. We can come back in June and July. We have a wee break and then we start the next season. You know, normality is uh, that, that, that football and sport is about 50, 60, 70,000 people plus everybody around the edges and bars and and cafes and everything like that, meeting, congregating, and um, the event happening. I personally can't see the mindset changing uh, in two or three months, you know, to summer when everybody feels comfortable with that. You know, so I, I, I don't think the industry has got their head around the fact that we ain't coming back anytime soon to what we normally accept as the football industry experience and business model, which is what I said, 100,000 people uh, in various locations around the country all getting together. I, I just think there's, there's a bit of denial here. And at the other end of the scale, you've got the financiers and the accountants all saying, this looks really bad, guys. The irony, uh, Roger, is that um, everyone is of the same opinion and wants the same thing, and that's for football to obviously restart. But if you're talking about priorities, keeping people safe is number one, and then football comes behind that. Can I push back a little bit on that, Ian, a little yeah. bit? Because, you know, we, 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 as you say, are probably three, four months, a, a weeks ahead of everybody else. So, you know, we as a country have taken that, you know, health comes first uh, and, and every life is one that must be saved. I can tell you that, you know, uh, two months into this now, the, the the current narrative is slightly different, which is there's health, but you need to define health. Um, and we need to understand whether a person, predominantly, it's not said this, but it's implicit, um, predominantly old, uh, who doesn't make it, 
Um, is that worth more than somebody suffering mental health at home or somebody um, beating up his wife because uh, he's locked down? And that's that's a big issue very few people talk about. Uh, domestic violence is, is on a huge uptick. And then the last one is the health of people who don't have food, don't have food on the table because uh, they're not working um, and all the knock-on effects from that. So I think everybody now, all over, is now in this world where, we, where they're saying lockdown uh, just to you know keep the numbers to an absolute minimum uh, has moved on to let's look at it more holistically. And I think that's probably right. But, you know, I don't think that's going to save sport and football because the the congregation, the event-led businesses are going to be the last ones that come back. You mentioned there, Roger, um, that the finances are, are looking very bad and the financiers are telling them they're looking very bad. With that prognosis you've given us that you don't see any of the leagues, any of the major leagues com competing. And it's very hard to define a point at which they come back in the form that we're used to, i.e. with full stadia, with people congregating around it, um, with, with a, the proper match day experience, both for the supporters and for the, the supporters behind the television screen, which I think is going to be very important if when football goes down the ghost game route is, is what the, the, the commercial response from advertisers and, and fans watching on TV is to that. How bad with that prognosis do you see it getting for clubs in the major European leagues? Well, um, let's split it out a little bit because like in everything these days, um, there's no real collective nouns that hold anymore. You, you have to segment a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I've always believed, and we talked about this the last time, that football, even before this, was going through a process which I like to call um, the, the, the polarization into Hollywood versus art house. And what do I mean by that? I mean that there's uh, two dozen... Um, brands, brands, football brands um, globally that um, are aspiring to be lifestyle, to be entertainment, to uh, appeal to a global audience uh, that are looking for celebrity and, and that kind of um, content and experience. And the rest of football, the rest of the football industry. Um, so we need, to, we need to segment that a little bit. Uh, and I don't have a crystal ball here. But um, I think this virus is a little bit like um, Franz Ferdinand in the First World War. All the elements were there, but this is just the catalyst to mm -hmm. uh, do what was going to happen. Um, so I think you will get uh, this polarization and split between these, these entities, these brands that are wanting to play the game I just said. And then the rest of uh, football will need to work out how it sits below that in a meaningful way. Um, you know, with the American experience is that you have closed leagues and, and you work it on that basis. I think that day for European football is significantly closer in the last two or three months. Um, and then, you know, even for the football industry um, itself, you know, um, you look at, you look at um, clubs in the leagues just below the big ones, Serie B, um, what's it called, the Championship in England, 
those are financial basket cases because people are uh, operating on the business model of um, invest and you'll get to the promised land. And of course, only if you get uh, get to that. And you know the the balance sheets of these clubs are, are, are a nightmare. Many of these clubs are supported by um, patrons who can afford to spend those kind of monies because their underlying businesses are successful. You know, um, that's certainly clear in Italy and, and clear um, in most of these, the, these, these clubs. Here's the news. These underlying businesses are bleeding cash themselves. So where, what do we think these people are going to do? Well, we know what they're going to do. If their underlying business is struggling, they're no longer going to subsidize their passion project uh, to the tune of 10 million euros uh, a year uh, to fund that deficit. I'm talking specifically about, you know, clubs like um, Entella funded by the Doferco Group or, or, or there's loads of examples. So Serie A, I think, could see mass um, insolvencies, the, the, the championship uh, equally. Um, and, you know, what this will mean is that it would necessitate a complete change in the business model for what I call the football industry, uh, excluding the, the Hollywood clubs. And, and that's going to have big implications. As business models are going to change. How do you transition to that new business model? You probably need some outside financing. That's going to be uh, the private equity boys, probably. And, you know, they're going to do that on what they always do, on their terms. Um, you know, so that's how I see it, Duncan. I see um, the realization that if you're not a, a Hollywood club, your current model probably wasn't uh, the right one. Um, and, and, and that means addressing the core of the, of the model. And the core of the model is putting players on four-year contracts. I think that's going to end. But you, you talk about the championship there um, and, and private equity coming in. In tell you, looking at, at the Premier League, I'm, I'm hearing at present there are at least two Premier League clubs with serious liquidity problems who are desperate to borrow money to keep um, themselves afloat at present. And they are being offered money by private equity, but it's at rates of 15 to 20% with significant clauses involved in terms of repayments um, and priority over repayments should the clubs not be able to sort out the financial problems. And give the listener a bit of context, because we, we, we think about the Premier League as being super affluent, and obviously it is in terms of the amount of revenue it's generating. But if you go through the books of Premier League clubs, um, those that have almost all of them have now um, declared their finances for 18-19 season. Only half of the clubs made a profit. Um, so you've got half of the clubs in the division making losses and some of them recording quite significant losses. Only five of the clubs made a profit of more than £10 million. Um, one of the clubs of the £10 million profit is Manchester City, which you could argue is, a, is effectively an artificial profit, given the, the way money has been pumped into it from overseas. You, you look at a club like Southampton, for example, which has just declared a loss of £41 million for the 2018-19 season on a, on a wage-to-turnover ratio of 77%. So over three-quarters of the money coming into that club is being paid to players 
um, 11th highest wage bill in the Premier League, um, the, the ninth highest uh, rate of uh, amortisation on transfer fees, um, a club that has become dependent on making its past profits from player sales. Clubs like that are looking, I think, in this situation at very serious difficulties. And you talk about private equity coming in and doing it on their terms. If if your analysis of what would happen to a club like Southampton if private equity um, got to do it fully on their terms, what what would the what would the differences be to quite an established Premier League club in, in this context where they run out of cash. This this is the, the trillion dollar question. This is the core of it. And and I, I am involved a little bit in these conversations and you're absolutely right. They're all out there. You know, you can call them vulture investors if you want. Um, fact is that, you know, cash is king when, you know, you get into a recession, depression in, in any industry and, you know, they are out there. You know, what what... What I think will happen, and again, we did discuss this the last time, is, yeah. is I, I think that um, this is the, these are the new axioms for the football industry. Um, I think you're going to have to introduce incredibly new professional processes for any transfer that you want to go through, or not just transfer, even just signing a player with a big uh, contract. You know, we talked about how ridiculous it is that it's capex of maybe up to 300, 400 million, 500 million to sign a Cristiano Ronaldo with fee and wages. And the processes behind that would be utterly laughed at at any other industry. The way it is so amateur and superficial and um, just lack of accountability and benchmarking, everything like that. So I think these boys and P and private equity will change all of that. They will not put up with all of that. And that means uh, for people that are involved in professional processes around football, that's going to be good news. Um, I think that it will insist that um, the, the, the ratio of fixed cost to variable cost will uh, change. You mentioned this in your last podcast. So much more of, of player uh, remuneration will need to be uh, success and, and um, deliverables based, much less as a fixed salary and much more on, on uh, performance. performance. On performances. I think you mentioned correctly the player uh, wages uh, revenue ratio. I think these boys will um, insist that it's no more than 50%. Um, I think they will also say to uh, football things like, you know, um, look, you know, I, I know it's uh, maybe not applicable to us, but if you look at a club like Nord Zealand um, uh, up there, that have got 50% of their first team squad coming from their academy. Why can't we do that? I think that's going to happen. Um, I think you're going to get uh, these people uh, coming in and saying, look, can you explain to me what Atalanta's all about, what Gaddafi's all about? You know, how can they manage to do that? Tell me what um, the XG philosophy is. You know, um, can we really use that? And any club that comes back with the old line, which has been prevalent in football, let's laugh at XG, let's ridicule anybody that thinks that data is for geeks, they're gone. They're they're gone. So I think you're going to see a massive uptake in, you know, AI into um, and machine learning using data into football. 
that will be both on recruitment side, uh, but also on the injury side. And um, you're, you're going to have these people say, yeah, you can have my money, but it's going to be really expensive money, as you say, Duncan, but I'm not putting up with your bullshit. And and like, this is how you run the, the football industry. That's how I, I think the next 24 months looks like. When you talk about the polarisation of the Hollywood clubs and the rest of the football industry, that it is potentially the case that if there's a split between those two versions uh, of football, the football industry, the art house, as you described it as well, they may have to just have a system where they accept that no transfer fees will exist because that makes it even more expensive to, to run the football club. Um, and also, as we said, the contracts will come down accordingly as well. But the, the, the turnover, if you like, of money through football from the transfer fees would be uh, null and void in that side of it. But those clubs could still sell, say, a young player like Birmingham, say, like Jude Bellingham, to a Hollywood club, and we could still be able to receive a fee. That, that, that's exactly what I think. You know, uh, um, l- 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 let me t- take you through a, an old story of mine. When I sat on the UEFA Professional Football Committee uh, at the the start of the millennium, 2001-2002, there was something around which most people won't remember now. It was called Bosman 2, not Bosman 1, Bosman 2, which was people like FIFPRO saying that professional footballers were nothing more than simple employees and um, they were free to walk out on contracts, paying damages, obviously, if they didn't complete their contract. But the idea of a transfer fee was ludicrous. And they wanted um, football to accept that. At the time, football put on uh, a huge effort. It was called Specificity of Sport. And it went through Platini and it went through uh, government in the EU that stopped that. And they came up with a, a, an awful situation, you know, like people still don't understand it if you're over 28 and, and all, all that stuff, uh, which was basically a fudge. So what I think now is that I think you will get uh, teams um, all through the football industry, excluding Hollywood, that will, as Daniel Levy just said earlier, you, the news you gave, not interested in transfer fees. Um, so find ones without transfer fees. Uh, equally, the the main difficulty that clubs are, are seeing now is that they have put um, a, f- a fixed cost base uh, player contracts and three, four, five year contracts that cannot deal with elements of volatility that we've seen. And that's been around even before the virus, when they go up a division, they down a division. It's very difficult to manage a business where you're you're hooked into a four or five year contract. So I think you will see smaller contracts maximum two years, maybe even one year, where it's a little bit like the gig economy that you put together a virtual team for a season, maybe two seasons, and transfer fears will be very rare. But yes, you know, if you do stumble across through your academy or a player just develops, uh, somebody that a bigger club, a Hollywood club wants, I think you will take that as a very, very welcome bonus. It would be incredibly foolish to put that into your business modeling saying, well, every year I'll have 10, 20, 30 million that covers my operating expenses the way it is today. You know, you've got uh, what I, classic feeder clubs 
you know, the Portuguese, the Dutch, uh, Celtic, uh, Southampton, their whole model, the whole industry in the, la in the last few years has been about, yeah, if you do this well, you can really get big transfer up, uh, you know, capital gains. Uh, sadly, I, th I think that's gone. I think you will have much smaller, shorter contracts with very little transfer fees. And it will be back, I think in many ways, it'll be back to the good old days where, you know, your, your, the skill of a manager to put together a, a dressing room of men and, and put them in, in a team overnight. That, 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 you know, today's the, the anniversary of Brian Clough uh, retiring from football almost 30 years ago. That kind of skill of, you know, taking teams of relatively journeyman players and turning them very quickly into a winning unit, I think that's going to be what uh, the football industry is looking for. The, the the type of manager who wants you to buy the best. And, and that includes Guardiola. You know, uh, the people that say, yeah, you, uh, you know, uh, hire me, but, you know, I need that budget immediately. I think that's going to be less prevalent. It will be the builders, the man managers, the people that can put together um, success uh, on, on those kind of conditions. That's, what, that's how I see the, the industry going forward. And that's what I think private equity will want to hear uh, before they invest in a club. Let, let's, let's talk about Hollywood, um, Roger, because you, first podcast you did for us, you talked in detail about European Super League, how it was coming. He said for sure it was going to happen. It was a question of how it was going to be structured, who was going to pay for it, who was going to have control of it, whether it was UEFA, whether it was going to be FIFA. We've seen since then Florentino Perez, the Real Madrid president, getting into bed with Gianni Infantino and setting up the World Club Football Association, um, ostensibly to develop the, the FIFA Club World Cup, but also to talk about developing club football around the world. I'm making it more competitive. Um, we're in a situation now where, as I say, clubs in the top league in England, in the most affluent league in England, are looking for short-term cash, keep themselves afloat. At least two of the major European leagues are trying to raise substantial hundreds of millions of euros of, of capital or loans. Reduce finance, them, yeah. Yeah, to keep themselves keep their clubs afloat and keep the leagues afloat. So you've got La Liga trying to do that. You've got the French League who have now had had to cancel from government instruction their, their season and are facing threats of legal action from member clubs such as Lyon off, off the back yeah. of it. The Bundesliga had, have talked about and have been looking for that kind of capital too. The game suddenly needs money like it's never needed before. And absolutely that interest, as you say, in Hollywood coming together, the super clubs coming together to form a European Super League remains. Where, where do you see this going in the next year or so? Um, what, what are your friends, the Agnellis, um, thinking of this and as a way of taking advantage and pushing their agenda to have a European Super League? And are, are UEFA going to lose it? because of the, the difficulties they're having controlling the domestic leagues at present? Yes, excellent question. You know, um, I think the, the big, big question to sum all of that is, define for me the added value of a governing body at this point. Mm -hmm. Now, it's as simple as that, Duncan. 
you know, um, why does private equity even need to speak to Infantino, UEFA, this league, that league, with all their rules, all their governance, all their conflicts of interest, just go directly to the, the asset. Just speak to the clubs, set up a new brand, a new league, um, and just go for it. You know, that's, the, again, I think this is the the, 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 the the kind of denial that sport is in. They, 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 they believe that the governing body is the gateway that you need to pass through. I think they're going to find out quite quickly now the big finance doesn't think like that. You know, it says, do I need this person? Do I not need this person? If the answer is no, they will not come to you. So, you know, I think the big threat now is that uh, private equity just says, you know, what are the what are the 24 clubs I need? Um, 20 clubs if it's just one league. And uh, let's have a wee chat with them. And, you know, the, the, the idea, well, you can't do that because your players will be excluded from World Cups and all that kind of stuff. I don't think that's strong a threat anymore for obvious reasons. Um, everything's on play. Everything's on the table. Uh, all governing bodies all around the world are having to hear that. You know, CVC and rugby, that deal hasn't been concluded. I wonder why. I suspect the reason is CVC now saying some of the things I'm suggesting. I don't know that, but that deal was meant to have been done. It hasn't been done. You know, big finance, it doesn't have a lot of sentimentality. And I think football's about to find that out. So, Roger, <clears throat> given that until this point, football's riches have mainly come from broadcast contracts and sponsors, there obviously there's been investment in clubs from individuals or companies who like FSG. But so what's the what makes it different now because it's VC venture capital which is getting involved rather than the money coming from other sources? Is it just the ruthlessness of that industry? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean the broadcaster. Let's exclude that because they were they were getting a, a product in exchange that they could make very good use of. Um, so the, the the current investors in football of, as you say, less so now. Individuals uh, used to be the you know Berlusconi's and Moratti's of this world, uh, the Tapis um, and Marseille and things like that. Those days kind of moved on, and you got instead the Fenway Group, and you got, um, you know, uh, you got the Cronkies, and and then you've got the the nation states, which maybe we'll come on to as well. But but. In the main, all of those people, all of those people played by the existing governance structures in football. And, and often they were happy to do that because they were often in love with sport as they'd grown up with it. You know, Fenway, you know, loves baseball. You know, it, it's, you know, the, 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 the traditionality of sport was still important there. Finance doesn't think like that. You know, it just looks at the spreadsheets. It looks at costs that it can remove, a value added that it needs to have, and it, the sentimentality goes. And I think that's the big difference. They don't care about, you know, Brian Clough. They just don't. Let's have an assessment from you as, a, as an expert in this area of how much this has taken off the total value of football at present. And let's say, for example, you were Silver Lake, who last year spent half a billion US dollars to buy 10% of City Football Group, which is effectively Manchester City and the other um, clubs around the globe that, um, that Abu Dhabi uh, control. 
and own. What would you be thinking about as the the real value of that investment after what's happened in the last couple of months? Well, um, value is always in the eye of the beholder. Uh, something is worth what somebody's prepared to pay for it. You know, um, listen, this is a big conversation about whether it's a V-shaped uh, recession or it's an L-shaped uh, and all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I am probably on the more pessimistic side, but, um, you know, when you've got governments, you know, printing a lot of money to prop up a whole lot of industries, anything can happen. All I would point you to a little bit is, is what I call the hard facts, that benchmarks that are in the industry. If sport has got a bellwether now, um, it's probably uh, the Endeavour IMG group that um, tried to do a public listing and IPO uh, earlier in the year and last year and didn't manage and has now had its debt uh, downgraded to, I think it's CCC Plus, which in parlance is junk. It's, these are junk bonds. Um, they are scrambling around now uh, using Silver Lake to try and you know buy them some oxygen with with financing. Uh, and I think this is where we should be looking. Sport and its way of doing things and the reason it made money is all under a big question mark just now. So given that, you know, um, what is it, 30% down from where it was? You know, is it 50%? Listen, you know, if you don't have liquidity, you'll take whatever offer people give you because there's no option. If you've got good backers, then you can probably hold out a little bit more. I'm sure there'll be people, guys, that you know, uh, look at all these spreadsheets about valuation of players, um, and they will probably come up with a figure that's maybe 30 40% less across the board for all players. And I would say 30 to 50% if I had a, a shot at it. But that's a huge number. And when you think that sport, in a lot of ways, like all industries, has been you know financed uh, by debt, when the equity side of it goes down like that, then it's a little bit of a, a chain chain of dominoes that you know liquidity problems go all the way through the ecosystem, and it causes you know that's where recessions, depressions come from. It's the end of a business cycle. If it's um, if it's if it's a debt a debt uh, provoked. Uh, end of a big business cycle, then anything can happen. Early in this crisis, I talked to uh, someone who's in charge of transfers and recruiting players and, and a, a, a very successful transfer strategy at a leading European club. And his assessment of the next transfer window, he thought um, prices would be down by at least 30% by then. Uh, and he, he was thinking two, three years before the market recovers to where it used to be. I, I need to check in with him again. I suspect his his assessment will have got even even worse since then. You you mentioned nation states in there, and and we've been talking about valuations of clubs and and investing in the in the football ecosystem. Um, I think we have to talk about Saudi Arabia's. Um, proposed investment in Newcastle United. Um, and I, I know, Roger, you actually 
helped uh, advised on a, an alternative bid for Newcastle United in the past and have, have gone through their books yeah. in the past. What, what's your analysis of, of that deal in this, in this context we're in in football at present? Oh, uh, hmm. we need, that, that, that takes you into geopolitics. Mm-hmm. It takes you into the oil price. Uh, it takes you into OPEC, uh, shale industry, uh, Russia. I don't think we want to go uh, anywhere there. Um, listen, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia has got a vision. I think they call it Vision 2030 to diversify their economy a- away from the oil business. Uh, and they look for investments. I'm not sure that that strategy um, is is a well thought out one. You know, I may be wrong, but I think they're also investors in um, SoftBank and, and the Vision Fund there, which has been um, classically um, uh, underperforming in recent years uh, with WeWork and things like that. Uh, so they are trying to diversify. Um, they do have an element of uh, wanting to um, restore or clean use, whatever words you want, the image they have had from from human rights, from Khashoggi, um, you know, the new ruler is meant to be a a, 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 a kind of reformer. Um, so buying a football club probably is correct, and 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 all from their point of view. Um, they also have got a population. Most people don't realise this, but a huge amount of them are under thirty-five. Um, they, I think, need an oil price of about eighty dollars to make their domestic economy break even. Most people think, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia and the Arab countries are all swimming in cash. I've heard that commented on in in recent weeks about Newcastle. The fact is, they aren't. You know, they need eighty dollars a barrel to make their domestic economy work. They clearly don't have it. For people that don't know, it's currently sitting around 20. Uh, They're eating into the reserves, and those reserves probably have got another two or three years before they go negative. All these things can be proved if people want to look at it. Uh, So um, they are not this bottomless pit uh, investor, but they they do have an asset that kind of sits in there, you know, um, build up their image as well as diversifying their economy. Uh, yes, Newcastle, I've always liked as an investment opportunity. It's a club that I think like all the, the Northern clubs are, is, 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 is proper football. I'm not saying that others aren't, but you can't tell me Chelsea and Newcastle have got the same traditions and passions. I just don't believe that. Maybe I've just been influenced by watching the English game on Netflix, but uh, I think Northern football is is different. Uh, I think Newcastle could be a, an absolutely massive club. Uh, I did look at the numbers. There are a whole lot of revenue streams that could be done better. Um, you know, so I think it's... I, I don't want to be somebody that judges on this because if you start judging on things, you can judge on everything these days about where money comes from and how it's spent and how the life is unfair. Um, I look at it from this point of view. Most Newcastle fans will be very happy about this, uh, and rightly so. And if that club can use this money wisely, 
and don't do what everybody else has done. You know, in the first years, Chelsea bought badly and just sprayed the, the money around willy-nilly. Man City did the same. If they take this opportunity of a depressed market and they surround themselves with people that know where value is in the transfer market, and it isn't always with marquee names, then I think it's it's a well, it's a good thing for for Newcastle fans. There's no doubt about that. Might not be good for other people that have got other agendas, but you know um, that's the background I see it. I understand why it's happened. It's not the way it's been portrayed. They're not as rich as as uh, people think they are. He'll want to win. I don't think he's going to be super patient. So you're going to need operators there that are strong and are prepared to say, great. We've got a depressed player market. Let's not splash the cash. Let's be nice and tight and have a nice five-year plan and we'll take Newcastle into Hollywood. I think that's what Newcastle fans can hope for, the, 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 the way it turns out. When you, when you say take into Hollywood, Saudi Arabia is a country that has been playing with FIFA in terms of the, the idea of taking control of the Hollywood League. Being the yeah, ones I think via SoftBank, yeah. 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 I mean, you also, you mentioned the, the percentage of dependence on oil revenues in Saudi Arabia. The chief executive of, of PIF, who's Yasser Al-Rumayan, who's due to become the chairman in Newcastle in a recent interview, said that 70% of um, Saudi's current revenues were oil dependent at present. So that's 70% of the, the GDP. At present, just just in terms of that um, bit and that that analysis you you put together of Newcastle, what what was your assessment with the funding you had in terms of where you could get Newcastle United in the Premier League realistically by operating them in a more efficient manner? How high did you you think you could get them by sorting out things like commercial revenue and and uh, and changing the internal management of the club? Certainly a top 10 club. Um, you know, it depends on what your competitors are doing. You know, but uh, if you're assuming that everybody is living within their means, then Newcastle pr certainly could be top six. You know, uh, the passion up there, the tradition of the club, um, you know, one city, uh, one club city, um, it's got everything you need. Now, people will say, uh, oh yeah, but players don't want to come and live in Newcastle. Their their wives want to be shopping on on the King's Road. Um, I, I think those days have changed a wee bit in the last uh, six months. Uh, but regardless of that, regardless of that, th there's a plentiful market for players around the world. Many of whom are hungry and want to progress their careers and are not bothered about social media and Instagram and you know whether all of those things. And I think Newcastle's got everything in place to be one of those very, very top clubs in, in, in world football. That takes us to our quick fire round and very nice segue. Thank you, boys. I'm going to ask you a very simple question. Don't feel you have to um, answer too quickly. Roger Duncan has a record in this round of going beyond eight minutes. Um, so the, qu <laughs> yeah. the question of the quick fire round is, is this, will Newcastle United win the Premier League in the next five years? No. Oh, well, that was very quick. <laughs> uh, you, you are allowed to expand a bit if you want, Roger. Well, well like I say, you know, um, 
well, uh, how do you know my answer is there ain't going to be a Premier League? Um, <laughs> you know, do you know what I'm saying? Uh, okay. Do you know what I'm saying? There's too many. There's there's too many variables. You know, so if I'm doing some kind of like game theory or trying to work out probabilities here, um, I, I see uh, six, seven teams in, in English Premier League that are, are are still going to be very, very well financed and much further ahead in terms of where they are in football um, than uh, the Newcastle are. Uh, all the, the the environment change things we've talked about, um, the fact about Saudi not having as much money as everybody thinks. Uh, I, I think the chances of them winning it in the next five years are less than 5%. Duncan? Well, I, funnily enough, I was going to go down that line of, um, will we have a Premier League in the next five years that Rogers highlighted there? So do do the top, the, the, the elite clubs, do, do Liverpool, do Manchester United, um, Chelsea, if they can squeeze in Manchester City, do they go to this European Super League? And then what you get left with is a Premier League where Newcastle are are suddenly one of the, the top dogs. Um, then, yes, then they, they would have a chance of winning it in the next five years. If we stay within the current structure, I think no. I think it's going to take longer than that. And I think that the noises from the people who are involved in this bid, they... They, they want to spend money and they say there's plenty of money to spend there, but they want also to, they keep saying they want to stay within financial fair play. They want to not break the rules in the way that Manchester City have done to get to the top. Uh, and to do that, um, it's going to take a lot longer than five years, I think, to get to the very top. I'm glad you mentioned the idea of the super elite clubs in the Premier League leaving there, Duncan. That's what I, I was thinking when I was formulating the question that maybe Newcastle would be Premier League champions of a, a depleted Premier League. <laughs> so, well, well but think, think, think about it, Ian. Think about this. You know, if, if you, as you say, if, if, if this might not be the case, we, we, you've both said that Saudi Arabia was one of the, the, the potential funders of uh, the Super League that was discussed with Infantino or separately or with private equity. They were one of the big players. Um, let me ask you this then. If they still have that idea and they've bought Newcastle for 300 million today and they then put together a Super League in the next nine months, what value do you think Newcastle is worth compared to the benchmarks of the 4 billion of Man United? That's a pretty good way to up the value of Newcastle on your investment, no? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good way to make money. Absolutely. If you can, if you can hand the golden ticket of European Super League um, entrance to a club, then you you turn them into billion pound plus club overnight. Do you not? Even in the current, even yeah, I absolutely do. You absolutely do. So think think about that. You know the other ones that would be great uh, targets for that Celtic. You know, uh, can you imagine the upside if, if if you were going to... So just think through all through Europe, all those clubs. If you're able to deliver a privately owned Super League, and then you cannot... What you would do if you were if you were able to do that is you would buy up some of the assets that would, on, that would be immediately revalued on that episode happening. That's a smart way to make an awful lot of money. So, Roger, how many, just before we go, and we'll turn it into the longest quickfire round ever off the back of this, how many clubs do you put into that European Super League to have it working at an optimal level? 
and which other of the the clubs that have been relegated to relatively minor leagues by the the, the polarisation of football get reinstated in the top league off the back of it. You know, you, Benfica, Ajax, who else comes back into the fold under this model? Well, the answer to both of those questions is, is, is the same in that, you know, when you're doing these new leagues, what you want to have is representation in as many used to be called TV markets, let's just call them countries as possible. In the same way, you would want to have the traditional big names of European football back in there. And I'm also including the teams like Red Stars at uh, Belgrade and things like that. So you'd have Anderlecht, you'd have the Portuguese guys, um, Turkish big ones, maybe even a Greek one, maybe not, uh, the Scottish boys. You know that you know who the answers are. You know you just need to go through the 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 winners list of the European Cup, and those would be the the clubs that you would go for, and you would pick up all those countries at the same time. Some of them which are very big, like Turkey. And how many clubs? Well, it depends what you want to do. You know, um, uh, listen. You know, these models don't like volatility. So that means that the idea of promotion and relegation is a is a, vo- a volatility event that you probably wouldn't want. Ideally, I would I would like to have two divisions of a uh, um, sixteen, so that's thirty two clubs. But because, as I say, up and down doesn't really work so well. You know, probably twenty, twenty, um, twenty two, twenty, something like that. Okay, which. Which makes the access quite limited if it's 22. There's only so many Red Star Belgrades you can get in. That's right. Upsetting the Manchester Cities of the of the world who have got themselves into that status level when they don't really have the history um, to entitle themselves to be there. But they You're have right. the players, right. Duncan. They do have the star players. Yeah. That's the other thing that's going to be part of the model, I would suspect. Well, thank you both for making that indeed the record-breaking quickfire round of the Transfer <laughs> Window podcast to date. Uh, we shall challenge it, no doubt, the next time Roger's on the, the pod, which we hope is very soon. If you want to get involved and continue the debate, then please do on our social media channels, which are at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Duncan Castles is on at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. And Roger Mitchell is at RPM Como. Is that correct, Roger? Yeah, as in the lake. And uh, also, give uh, Are You Not Entertained a listen, Roger's flagship podcast, which uh, discusses in detail things that we've discussed today with uh, other very, very knowledgeable guests. Uh, and we're very grateful to Roger for bringing his knowledge to the Transfer Window podcast today. Great to have you on, Roger. Yeah, thank Ian, you just very before much. we go. I mean, just before we yep. go, can we formally celebrate nine in a row now, do you think? <laughs> Has it been declared? Who cares, mate? <laughs> you, know, you know, like, it's, uh, I think... Well, Roger, Roger, what happened to being the bigger man and advising they should, <laughs> they should declare, they should turn down the Scottish title? I, I, all, like all of us, we have got split, split personalities in football. We put on this super professional uh, chat that, that works so well, but at the end of the day, it's all about bragging rights and, and slamming your, your foot on the throat of your rival. So for me, we're living in nine in a row as we sit. Well, I've only one thing to say to, to in response to that, and that would be 
Hail, hail. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for listening Thanks, as guys. always, people. Uh, and we will be back with you next week on the transfer window. Um, until then, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. Hey.